Hi, I'm Namusa. And I'm Adadana. And this is the Africana Podcast. Now I don't know why, what our words really are. It's okay. We'll make them up. We'll make them up. No one knows what we are saying. Hello, listeners. Hey, listeners. So we have a very special guest to kick off our season, uh, someone that is near and dear to the both of us, and we're excited to now share her work with you. So we are here today with Elsie Mbugwa. She is the founder of Elsie Investments with its power subsidiary, uh, Leadwood Energy, a specialist energy advisory company focused on renewable energy projects. She's also one of the financial transaction advisors to the government of Kenya on the country's crude oil and natural gas prospects and is considered a thought leader and a key policymaker in East Africa's energy markets. She is well known for working on what she terms as, quote, first of a kind energy transactions in the region. She was voted 2019 Young Emerging Energy Leader and also received AEF Award. AEF's award recognition for her exceptional leadership in Africa's energy sector. In 2020, yes, in 2020, as in this month is only four months old and she's already been recognized, her firm was voted Best Renewable Energy Consulting Firm in East Africa by CV Magazine. And her thoughts on Africa's energy transformation are widely published in numerous energy journals. She started her career as an energy trader and has more than a decade of experience as a physical energy trader for some of the world's largest trading houses, including Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan covering markets in coal, emissions, power, natural gas, liquefied natural gas, and crude oil. And during her time as a trader, she participated in the first market-based effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. Um, she then located to London as a physical crude oil trader covering the dated Brent and West African crude oil markets. And she was the youngest, one of the youngest, rather, physical oil traders in London. And in 2015, with her heart drawn to improving and transforming East Africa's energy sector, she moved to Nairobi to start her energy entrepreneurship career. And today her firm is involved in some of the largest energy transactions and plays a central role in advising on Kenya's energy policies. I cannot read today, guys. I'm so sorry. In addition, as if all of this wasn't enough, she's also the founder of a U.S. 501c3 organization called the Kenya, which is which builds water infrastructure projects with the goal of ensuring that all public schools in Kenya have access to clean water. And so far, more than 50,000 Kenyans rely on this rely on this infrastructure for their daily access to clean water. So our girl is accomplished, and she's here with us today. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, guys. This is fun. I've been looking forward to this. Namusa, hey girl. So. Elsie, we're so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, I know we've been trying to make this happen for almost over a year. So uh, we and our listeners feel really grateful to have you on. So I'll just go right into like the first question and ask, tell us about what you do and why it's important. Mm. No, that's such a good question because I think sometimes you don't really stop and reflect. So I think during this corona crisis, it's just been an incredible time to do this and be a part of your podcast. Um, but without being, you know, very academic, I thought, you know, we can just have a conversation about the sector. Um, and currently right now, based on what Addy shared uh, in the bio, um, I moved back in 2015 to set up an energy company. So I would say in sorts, I'm an energy entrepreneur now. And started with a holding company called LC Investments, um, which we're building out uh, with various companies underneath that umbrella. 
and we own a renewable energy company called Leadwood Energy. So right now, during my time as CEO, I've prioritized, you know, what we call first of a kind transactions. Um, and I think it might be better for me to explain some of the transactions that we've worked on um, in the last couple of years to kind of give you a sense of, you know, what our day to day is like. First is you know, being a financial advisor to the government of Kenya. So Kenya discovered oil in 2012, and the government needed experts to negotiate on behalf of the government with the oil contractors. So I am one of those financial advisors who sits on the government side with all the other oil contractors, um, you know, on the who usually are on the other side of the desk. And mm-hmm. we have seen an announcement by the president of Kenya that, you know, we had finalized the initial set of agreements, which detail the relationship between, you know, the government of Kenya um, and the oil contractors. Um, it also identifies how, you know, as a government and as a country, um, the Kenyan people benefit from the extractive sector or the oil that would be produced. Um, so that's one of them. Uh, participated in the sale of Kenya's first crude oil cargo, which was last August. Um, I was part of the team that met with the crude oil buyers in London, um, and this culminated in the sale of um, the first 200,000 barrels of the Kenyan blend. And this event was flagged off by the president of Kenya. Um, we've also looked at innovative ways where we can support Kenyans to earn money within the energy sector. And so we've been involved in what we call a local currency PPA, a PPA being a power purchase agreement. So on returning home, I realized that most of our power plants are owned by foreign companies. Um, And so this is a result of a U.S. dollar denomination of our power purchase agreement. So what is the long-term contract that we use to sell power to our utility? Our utility here is Kenya Power. And we were tasked by the Ministry of Energy and our Energy Regulatory Commission to figure out if there was a way where we could incorporate a local currency, so a Kenya shilling PPA. And this inevitably would allow Kenyans who are looking at earning an annuity long-term or for the duration of this agreement um, where they would earn uh, based on ownership of the asset, the gen- power generation assets that we have in the country. So that's some of the cool stuff mm-hmm. that you're doing, right? And then we'll do, you know, bigger, more difficult things. Like right now we're in the process of restructuring our national oil company and working with all various stakeholders to return it back to financial health. Um, We are looking at converting a lot of our thermal power plants to natural gas in the effort of, you know, promoting a lot cleaner fuel in the country. Um, We currently do not have natural gas in the country, so that means creating policy around the importation of natural gas. It would mean doing the first cargo um, of gas importation into the country um, and then, in addition to that, supporting the private sector to make an investment case that makes sense for both uh, private owners of thermal power plants and the government. Wow. Um, but thank you for telling us about like explaining what you do and why it's important. No, you're welcome. So it seems that agency and ownership are key themes to to the, one of the reasons that you returned. Um, so can you walk us through that journey, both to the U.S. and to London thereafter, uh, and then back home to Nairobi? 
you know, when and why did you decide um, to leave the UK and how was it like being back when you first arrived? Yeah, so I'm fully Kenyan despite having this somewhat American accent. So this stems from going to American international schools. So I apologize for all Africans who have, you know, the cool African accents, man. I, I envy you. Um, <laughs> same, same girl, same. I <laughs> uh, was educated uh, in the U.S. I went to Harvard and Tufts um, and then joined Goldman shortly after. And this was right at around the financial crisis, so a very, very difficult time to be both working on, on Wall Street um, and even harder being a physical energy trader at that particular time. There were just a lot of changes that were happening uh, in the commodity sector in the U.S. Um, but worked at Goldman uh, for a short period of time and then joined the J.P. Morgan Global Commodities team. And with them, I worked in New York, um, in Houston, um, and then eventually moved to London with them. And through that time, um, it was an incredible opportunity to touch on so many um, sort of energy products. So I would say I've, I've traded almost the entire gamut. So starting from coal, from emissions, doing the first regional greenhouse gas um, emissions um, contract uh, in the East Coast. Uh, I managed 3,000 megawatts of power uh, in the California market, um, was tasked with the responsibility of building our LNG desk, uh, and was the only North America LNG trader for JP Morgan for about three years, and then moved to London to trade crude oil. So each step of the way, it was based on your understanding of what those markets are, being able to, you know, formulate strong relationships with other traders in the market. And then obviously the key thing is, you know, being able to make money around a lot of the assets that we have or when we're moving products um, around the globe. Um, so with that, you know, it, it was an incredible opportunity, um, one, to be in some of the world's, you know, uh, largest trading markets. Um, it means that you create incredible relationships that I still rely on today. Uh, even as an entrepreneur, many of those relationships, it's still how I, you know, bring in new business um, um, and even give people the comfort of even looking at East Africa as a potential market and a place of doing business. Um, the transition back was, and the, the transition from Houston to London was because I was getting quite specialized in energy markets in the U.S. And when you're a trader, generally people are traders for life. And I thought, you know, you're African, you've got this specialized skill set, you know, you're a woman, you know, why not do more? And so moving to London was in the hope of being a part of the EMEA desk, so that would be Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And with that, as soon as I got there as a crude oil trader, um, I did have the opportunity to trade West African barrels. So I would buy a lot of Kwai and Boni um, and then buy, you know, North Sea grades um, in, in Europe. But at the time, because of the banking crisis, um, it was extremely difficult and there was no appetite for any Africa-based deals. So what I had hoped would be an opportunity for me to give a different lens or a different eye to what, you know, what we could do in Africa, um, that appetite was not there. Um, so because of that, after about two years of being at the desk in London, uh, doing an extremely, you know, 
difficult um, market environment, um, I decided I was going to just take a leap, right? And um, come back and figure out what, you know, what the energy sector looked like here. Um, it was impossible to get any information here um, without actually being on ground. Um, like most other markets, um, it's extremely relationship-based. And so I had to be here. So I left what was, you know, quote unquote, an extremely lucrative job, <laughs> earning very, very good money and thought, you know, I'm still in my 20s and there's a finite window to take risk. And I was willing to come back because this was home and build out, um, you know, with a hope of obviously, yeah, adding value. You know, this whole time I've known you, I had no idea you went to Harvard. <laughs> I know that's not the takeaway here, but I'm just like, what? Addie, that you took away from everything that Elsie just said. <laughs> yeah, so that was for bio and then economics and international relations at Tufts. That is hilarious. Sorry, I know that's not the point of this exercise, but, you know, you know, rival yeah. schools. Who knew this whole time? Yeah, I was like, Addie, <laughs> tell the people where you went to school. <laughs> uh it's uh, the better half of Harvard, as we call wow. it. Wow. <laughs> no, but Elsie, you're welcome here. It's fine. Um, <laughs> it's a safe space, Elsie. It is a safe space. <laughs> um, okay. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for walking us through that. Um, actually, Namusa, next question is yours. Um, you just said, Elsie, some like very impressive. Um, and in, yeah, just an incredible explanation of what um, you do and kind of how you got to what your journeys look like. Um, but for our listeners, and let's be honest, for me, from a, like a practical <laughs> perspective, what does an energy trader actually do? So like what, maybe like, what would your day look like um, or what as an energy trader? And then the second question to that are, are there many women in that field? Okay. So I think it's easy to start with a second question. There's not <laughs> many women. So just to give context, I think in London, uh, on the crude oil desk, um, we might have been two women um, very often. And I think we were two women out of, you know, you want to say perhaps 300 traders in London and that wow. was it. Um, very often on the Houston desk, usually you'd have one, if that, per commodity. Um, and so what we are saying is that maybe 2% of all traders, so there's not that many women. Um, and, and, and this at least has been on the trading desk that I've been on right now. Uh, things might have changed slightly, uh, but it's generally always been an extremely male-dominated, high-intense, high-pressure field. Um, so to your first question, Elsie, I'm just, I'm going to cut you off just for one second and ask of that kind of 2% that's women, what would you say, what percentage of that 2% would be African women? Oh, wow. We were would... interviewing her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we Forbes. surprise, this is for the financial times. Just kidding. Yeah. So let's say in London, I was the, on our entire JP Morgan floor, I was the only black woman. Wow. Yeah. Oof. Um, so, and it was doing the Lord's work, Elsie. Yeah. So it was extremely unfortunate because every time you saw somebody or a female of color, um, very often they were, you know, the secretary or the tea girl or the janitor. Mm. So you recognize just the weight of, 
your seat. Uh, in many ways, you mm-hmm. represented, and we used to always laugh, you were almost like the dual diversity. So you both, you know, held, you know, the, the female seat and you held the, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the woman of color seat as well. Mm-hmm. And so all eyes were on you. And it's really true that you do have to work, you know, twice as hard. Um, yeah. But it can also be the flip side of it is just seeing it more as an opportunity because then both your work, your capacity, um, and what you bring to the table is extremely visible, right? So, and I chose to mm-hmm. see the latter. So it was a fantastic opportunity because almost every managing director knew who you were. Um, you were mm-hmm. heavily involved in, you know, the pipeline, the hiring pipeline. Um, yeah, so there, there were a lot of fantastic opportunities. It meant that sometimes with senior traders um, who are extremely old school, um, with my desk, if I made the call uh, versus them, they were likely to return my call because they already knew who who you were. So mm-hmm. in that sense, you can, you know, I, I choose to see it as, you know, to be optimistic um, and say that being a female and a woman of color, being a black woman, um, maybe opened more doors than, than I might, I, I, I might probably even know. Interesting. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, so to the first question in terms of, you know, what does an energy trader do? So, you know, in its simplest terms, so energy trading is literally the buying and the selling um, or moving of bulk energy. So and it could be electricity, it could be natural gas, it could be oil. But what you're doing is that you're moving it from where it is produced to where it is needed. Um, And energy touches, why I love this sector so much is that it touches every fabric of life. Um, You know, I almost say it's like the undercurrent of, yeah, so everything. So the shirt that you wear, the coffee, um, you know, that you drink, um, the car that you drive, you know, your lights, all of that stuff, um, you know, relies on energy behind the scenes. Now, energy trading can be done either on an, a commodity exchange um, or it can be done, and that would be highly regulated, or it can be done over the counter. So what we say, OTC. Um, and these are bilateral transactions between a buyer um, and a seller. Um, and again, this is not regulated. Um, and so this becomes an extremely relationship-based business. And so there are two distinctions. So either you can be an energy trader um, and you focus on what we call financial derivatives or financial instruments. So these would be your large companies looking for somebody who has a view on the market that you're trading. So let's say, you know, gas, and they need to hedge the exposure. So you, for a premium or for a price, you're able to lock in their price up or down, depending on what it is that they want. Um, or it can be physical commodity trading, which is where now there's very few women, and that is the area where I, you know, I, I practiced. So the physical commodity trading in the word physical is that you're actually moving hydrocarbons from point A to B. So I'll give you an example. So um, as, as an LNG trader, what that would mean is... Sorry, really quickly, can you explain to the listeners what LNG is? So LNG... And by listener, she means Namusa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So some of these acronyms, um, yeah, you always think, you know, everybody kind of exists in the world that you're in. But liquefied natural gas is, it, I mean, LNG is liquefied natural gas. Um, it is, gas obviously is in, you know, gas form. Um, 
I was there that day. I know my states of matter. <laughs> so you liquefy it, meaning that you freeze it um, all the way where it's down to negative 150 degrees, right? And so it's extremely cold, and then that makes it uh, become liquid, and therefore you can transport it on vessels. Um, countries without a lot of storage, and these are mostly Asian countries, so South Korea, Japan, major you know, um, countries where you, know, you have large manufacturing require a lot of energy. And so therefore, then a lot of the requirements that they have for natural gas, um, that's usually brought to them on tankers. So that's the moving of that natural gas. So okay. a commodity trader, um, I would be, you know, there are certain regions um, that you would be buying the natural gas from, so mostly the Middle East. So I would go to the Qataris and buy and tell them that I want to pick up a cargo. Uh, usually you'll have long-term supply agreements, uh, but at the time I was trading, it was a, you know, a, a massive opportunity to buy spot cargos, which again, that's the extra supply that they have. And then transport it back to Houston, um, put it into your liquefaction um, you know, storage facility, and then put it on, onto another tanker to sell it. And usually, again, the, the types of markets that you know, we often sold to at the time were South Korea, Japan, and at the time, Argentina. And so as a commodity trader, I'm weighing the entire risk of actually moving that cargo from point A to B. Um, and then you know, I make what we call the spread. So the differential between point A to B um, you know, after you've taken out all your costs, that's what physical commodity trading is in a nutshell. And would you have to go like with the example that you gave with Qatar, would you have to physically go to Qatar or would you have to physically go to, let's say you were selling to Korea? Um, would you have to physically go to both locations? No, very often you would need to go just to meet again, to meet with the players. Um, very often mm -hmm. the transactions are done on trust. Um, so people have to almost know who you are. So if you're going, it's because you're going to establish a relationship. But very often you find that for physical traders, uh, usually you almost have, you're the one who manages the risk, you're the one who's at the desk. Um, and very often you have just a massive support system, you know, people who we call schedulers, um, you've got, you know, inspectors to make sure that the quality um, of what you're selling or what you're buying um, is correct. So it's, mm -hmm. it might be the person at the top uh, taking the risk uh, and maybe the more visible person, but you have just a, a huge support system behind, behind you. So very often those are the people who would, you know, be moving on ground, but usually you are at the desk um, for the most part. This is already one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done. Just saying. <laughs> Highly technical. Learning so much. Like, oh, I really feel bad. They're going to be so bored. But I find it fascinating. <laughs> no. So fun fact about me, my concentration in grad school was energy development in sub-Saharan Africa. So I have no idea. Huh. Yeah, girl. Look at us. Surprises in interviews. <laughs> So beyond wine drinking, we could we actually have a lot more we could talk about. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so really quickly, what would you say is a common misconception about the energy sector? Um, 
I would say a common misconception is that it's extremely difficult um, to play in this market. I think you just have to have the interest. One, if you enjoy politics, um, if you under- enjoy you know, economics, I think this is for you. Um, there's a level of obviously having a good quantitative skill, um, but beyond that, I feel that almost anybody can do it as long as you have the interest, right? And the interest is being able to tie. It's almost like just decision, decision making, being decisive um, is critical. And so very often it is the soft skills um, and the relationship building aspects that make you very good at this particular job. So the misconception that um, the barrier to entry is extremely high, um, I would hope that because I'm in it um, and I got in it, you know, knowing very little and not knowing anybody in the sector um, that most people who are listening to us right now would think, hey, that's something, you know, or that's an area that I would aspire to to get into. Um, yeah. So I think that that would probably be the main main one. And so a related question, but not related question, but I really want to ask it. So I'm going to pretend it's related <laughs> is. Have we hit peak oil, in your opinion? Mm, of course. <laughs> Please explain to the listeners what peak oil is or the theory. Hmm. Um, so peak oil theory is the, in, in, in the simplest term, it's the thinking that we would get to a point where we, in terms of available Available exploration and production, we would be at the peak, meaning from there on, the supply or availability of oil would be decreasing. Um, my personal view, again, and, and they're all thoughts on, on whether we've reached that. I don't believe we've reached there. Um, I think the perhaps why this conversation is coming back is as a result of the displacement of renewable energy. Um, And that is a real thing. Um, It is, we're seeing it in capital flight. Um, It's a lot more difficult to get the traditional investment um, that we used to see going into fossil fuels. Um, And it's diversifying everywhere from from banks, from institutional investors, from endowments. Um, So that is probably what is going to cause a change, uh, a significant change, but the availability of fossil fuels, I think we still have a long way to go with that. I would also imagine, sorry, I'm going to nerd out just a little bit here, but I would also imagine (laughs) that the Arctic melting also is going to make a lot of resources available that were previously hidden by ice. Yeah. And not even that, I think also the, the U.S. shale oil phenomenon. So just technology advancing, right? So there's um, other ways. So, you know, what you hear as fracking. So other ways of being able to um, put pressure, you know, crack the rocks and essentially get well that way rather than your traditional um, drilling that we used to do. So so what you're saying is that, yeah, so almost horizontal um, and using liquid to push push out a lot of the, the oil, the crude oil or the natural gas. So, you know, again, uh, you know, I want to say a decade ago, we never thought that we would have anything or would find anything like fracking. The fact that we have that just means that with 
technological advancements, there might be other ways of just harnessing or finding more more crude oil. So it would be difficult. And I, I agree with you as well, um, you know, with like the Arctic, but I think it's usually technological advancements that really change it. And, and that's more a, I think the easier way to say it is just the cost of production going down. Now, right now, as we, as we speak, we are in a very interesting time in the market mm-hmm. um, and a quite unusual market uh, time. You know, I, I would say it's been, we haven't seen these level of prices and it's going to be an extremely difficult time for the oil market. But this particular situation was on the back of two individuals. So MBS of Saudi Arabia and, and Putin of Russia. Um, and it was completely based on ego um, at a time where they were not willing where Russia was not willing to cut supply. Um, and it's just had an MBS, obviously, as soon as Russia said they were not going to cut supply, wanted to show uh, their dominance. Um, and so that back and forth is what caused prices, you know, in late February to essentially drop to unprecedented levels. Um, and, you know, we had not really thought through it. It was just a cocktail of so many terrible things happening at the same time. And you know, demand destruction from this whole coronavirus situation. Um, so, the cumulative effect of you know having two people with ego battling it out um, and increasing supply significantly into the market at the same time that we were having demand destruction, um, that is going to be you know a game changer for what the oil oil market looks like going forward. Um, And right now, it's still extremely difficult to get a sense of what the major things or or what is actually going to happen. But the, you know, what we knew um, as sort of the traditional way of looking at the markets is, is likely to change going forward. So with all of that in mind, how much exactly is a barrel of oil today versus what it typically or traditionally maybe has cost in the last few years? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that would be a million dollar question. I think I would not be sitting here. I'd be like a multi-billionaire if, if we knew that question, but today, right now (laughs) it's at $32. Um, but it's been oscillating. We've been in the 20, 20 something range, 25 range. Um, a while ago, a couple of months ago, we were at 60. Um, if you're talking at the height of, you know, 2007, around that time frame, we were at, you know, $100 plus. So generally, for the most part, it's usually the supply demand dynamic. And obviously with oil, they, you know, there's a lot of other variables that come into it because it's so politically tied. Um, in this situation in this current drop that we are in as of February, this one has been unique because there's no supply demand principles that are driving the price. I mean, this was egos between two guys. um, So Saudi Arabia's uh, MBS and Russia's Putin, Um, they go to an OPEC meeting. Uh, Saudi Arabia asks Russia, could you please reduce um, your supply um, just to sustain prices at a certain level. Um, Russia says, no, we will not do that. Um, And MBS to show dominance uh, that Saudi Arabia is still king of oil, uh, decides that they're going to flood the market. 
Um, and that would hurt everybody, including Russia, but more so um, it's currently hurting a lot of the U.S. shale producers who ha- whose break-even uh, price is a lot higher. Now, the what we have right now is just a cocktail of events that nobody uh, would have seen with demand destruction coming from the corona uh, crisis. So it's rare that you have just a flooding of the market, so an oversupply um, at, of this rate, and then not have any demand whatsoever. So global demand is, you know, it, it is almost to its knees. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting themes at the moment that are starting to emerge and nobody has a, it's not crystal clear exactly where we'll land. But, you know, some of the things that we're currently seeing at the moment is one, U.S. energy independence um, and America's place as the world's top oil producer is certainly to be threatened by this. Um Testing of global oil storage. So we've never really tested global oil storage. And so at these unprecedented cheap prices, everybody is buying up as much as possible with the anticipation that as soon as the pandemic is done, you know, economies are going to start um, and, and buying is going to start. And so prices will inevitably increase. And so then you'd be selling at that higher price. Um, there's also efforts by Saudi and Russia to gain global market share and take it away from U.S. shale producers who are starting to encroach um, on some of the markets where they've dominated over the years. And the U.S. is also finding itself um, almost in a situation where they have to support price control. Um, and this, again, is unprecedented. So in many ways, they almost have to not necessarily join OPEC, but they have to rally with them. Um, and we don't really know what the Trump administration will do, um, it, you know, in that standpoint. The other thing I think is based on our earlier conversation just about fossil fuels being displaced by renewable energy. There's a thought process that the Saudis uh, recognize that there's a small window of opportunity where with this change in tide for fossil fuels, then now, whereas before they it was you know, price control strategy. Now it's let's get out as much volume as possible before renewable energy essentially takes up so much of our market share. And so the idea is that with really cheap oil, then it also makes it extremely difficult for renewable energy to, um, yeah, to advance as quickly as it has. So maybe those are maybe some of the things that I am personally thinking or Mm -hmm. I'm waiting to see, you know, what exactly happens because nobody was, none of us were in the room when when these two parties were having a conversation and um, any increase in price going forward or any real rally will be completely dependent on both Putin and MBS actually shaking hands and not because of any other external conversation or, you know, Trump discussion on the fact that that they have agreed it until we see them because of their egos um, actually shake hands. That's when we'll know, at least from a supply standpoint, that there's some some level or some type of agreement. And Elsie, what might that mean for kind of like the everyday folks? Like, would that mean that 
there will be a shift in kind of jobs around the world. Um, what would what could that will that mean like the to fuel your car, the price might go down or might go up? What would that? Yeah. What are some of the possibilities? And I'm not going to quote you on this, but like what are some of the possibilities that might happen for everyday folks? Okay, so so the first, um, so if you're in the oil industry and ex- especially exploration, um, then what that means, and and we're we're going through the, a similar situation here. Um, what that means is that what your break-even price was um, to continue um, exploring or building out the infrastructure that would be required for production. So in Kenya, for example, we require an 800-kilometer crude oil pipeline to be able to move that crude from Lokicha all the way to Lamu, uh, to the port where we mm-hmm. exported, then it means that many of those projects, um, if they were pricey, um, then become, they become uneconomical, right? So they're just okay. not financially viable. So that means pro- so many projects around the world will be put on halt. Um, investments um, or investment decisions um, will be put on halt. It means that a lot of people um, within the oil industry, and we're saying upstream, so now that's the exploration part of it, would be, you know, would essentially be losing their jobs. It's going to be a really tough time. Now, on the, and I think maybe let me put this distinction. So the upstream is where you have exploration, right? And then you have the midstream, and the midstream is where the traders essentially function, where they're buying um, what is produced. And then you have downstream. Downstream is now where uh, the crude oil is sold to refineries, and then refineries essentially create what your refined products. So that's your gas, your diesel, etc., your naphtha, your jet fuel. Now, on the downstream mm-hmm. side of things, it means that as consumers, we benefit, right? Because the 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 cost of the input and the input being raw crude oil is a lot cheaper. And so as a result, then the refined products are also cheaper. So mm-hmm. in Kenya, for example, um, again, the anticipation is that as of April 14th, when usually we announce um, prices at the pump, it'll be significantly cheaper, right? So, you know, it might be around 10 shillings okay. or so cheaper um, at the pump. Yeah, so the the benefit is, you know, for consumers. So this whole thing is wild to me for so many different reasons. I think to touch on something that you said earlier, I think Obama doesn't get enough credit for his oil economics um, and how he effectively transformed the energy picture around the world through shale gas. Um, I know my friends, my grad school friends are going to say, Addy, but you have to say something about fracking. (laughs) So... I will put the disclaimer that fracking uh, does have uh, detrimental environmental effects for a lot of different reasons, um, and it is wild, you know, widely disparaged in environmental communities or you know policy communities about the harm that it does. Uh, but the flip side, from the economics and geopolitical point of, and the oil economics and oil politics point of view, it was a huge thing for Obama to do. Um, and I just think about these airlines, right? Like if you hedged, if you hedged at, let's say a barrel being, I don't know, 60, $50, maybe more 80. And now oil prices are what they are, but you can't do anything about it because there's no flight traffic at all. Um, 
it's, 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 yeah. What a time to be alive. It's just, there's this, yeah, this whole thing to me is so fascinating because we really haven't been here before, which means it can go all kinds of ways. Exactly. That's what makes this industry um, extremely exciting um, just because the political angle, and I don't want to give, and I'm not going to speak to Obama necessarily, um, you know, being the, the reason for, for shale oil, but there's so many external forces. And so you have to look at it, not just in isolation as one country, but just globally, there's so many moving pieces. So if you're asking, you know, do I want to be in a sector that is extremely dynamic? I don't think you get any better than, than this particular one. Um, and it's not just extending just to crude oil, because I mean, obviously crude oil and fossil fuels are not the only thing that I do, but it's just its extension to renewable energy as well, right? So for me, what I'm driven by is that there's still 600 million people on this continent um, that are, st- are still or, you know, have energy poverty. And so there's so many things from yes. infrastructure build out, from policy, from pricing, um, you know, to just, yeah, to just do better, right? So that what we all dream of um, in terms of, you know, having an Africa that's dominant um, and that ha- plays a bigger role uh, globally, um, that that we can actually realize that. Yeah, speak on it. And Elsie, just, just for clarification, um, what does energy, like, what does energy poverty mean and or how is that measured? So usually energy poverty um, is that right now we still have and, and these are statistics that are widely quoted. Uh, these are not my statistics. Mm-hmm. It's 600 million people still do not have access to electricity on the continent. Okay. And that would be in their homes? Yeah. So or just generally across the board? That's, okay. Yeah. So generally, it, it's usually across, it's across the board, but what you're saying is that uh, primarily in homes, um, you're saying these are areas, schools, hospitals. Yeah. So just regions. And so in those particular uh, regions, geographic regions with 600 million people, they do not have access to anything. So they're completely in the dark. Literally and figuratively. Yeah. Literally and figuratively. And so that's been, yeah, the the result of having just off grid, you know, um, many grids, um, not necessarily just relying on, you know, what we call a vertically integrated system where you're relying on a utility to essentially provide power um, because of just how big the continent is. And geographically, some of these people are quite far from the main cities. Then the infrastructure investment that's required to get electricity to a lot of these people um, just, uh, yeah, it, it's just staggering. And so, we, you know, you found that there's a lot of just technological innovations around off-grid and mini-grids to to figure out other ways of bringing electricity closer to them. That's pretty amazing and moves me into my next question. Um, and this is now taking it from kind of like looking at a macro perspective and focusing in on you. So what's been your proudest moment in your energy career so far? Um, so that it's it's hard to just pick one. Um, but I want to say moving back, um, and I think the transactions that have been a part of here um, in Kenya. So the local currency PPA for me was was one where 
you know, it was it was dear to my heart because it was not just saying it, it's building that it's bringing that wealth of knowledge that you have uh, from transactions that you've done globally and then trying to figure out how to empower and almost create wealth for for your you know your your fellow country countrymen um, mm-hmm. women yeah um, so transactions can be transactions um, anywhere um, and yes there is a high that you get um, when you make a lot of money but I think where you have the capacity to to change um, what the future looks like for for people in your country, right? To think about things a little bit different. I think for me, that type of innovation where you're working with various stakeholders um, and you're given an opportunity to essentially problem solve at that scale, um, that for me was um, was something that was quite phenomenal to be a part of. And we're still working on it. You know, we still haven't, you know, finalized the first power transaction. But the fact that you know, those conversations now are happening. Uh, it's something to be proud of as a Kenyan. And so do you have any concerns, I guess, for, I mean, you mentioned earlier that certain projects just don't, will no longer make economic sense in the current environment and the current price of, of a barrel of oil. But I mean, looking at, I guess, what are your thoughts on where Kenya goes from here in terms of it's relatively nascent by global standards, energy development, um, and you know where does where does the country go from here now? So, if we're saying um, where does the country go here from a crude oil perspective, um, I think that's still quite uncertain. One for various factors, right? So we have a an operator, Sotalo Oil, that's right now currently going into financial difficulty. Um, what happens um, at these low oil prices? Um, you know. And, and what happens to, to the company as a whole uh, definitely has a significant impact on what happens to Kenya as well. Now, the way it's set up, um, you know, that particular stake um, um, or their operatorship, you know, could be taken over by a different company. But again, those are subsequent conversations that need to happen. Um, we're still in the process of finalizing some major you know, legal um, contracts, so what we call long-form agreements. Um, and so those, again, need to be negotiated. There are certain concessions that are given by government um, to safeguard oil companies during a low-price environment. Um, you know, when we're negoti- negotiating some of these, I don't think we had necessarily envisioned that we would be at this particular um, low price environment. So I think what we're saying going forward, it's uncertain. Um, I don't think anybody knows fully exactly what direction we'll be going right now. But the challenge is that Kenya is still a frontier market, meaning that you're competing from an investment standpoint with all other places, right, where the break-even cost of producing oil is a lot cheaper. Um, mm-hmm. So it might mean it's means the oil might stay in ground a little longer. Um, perhaps for at this particular time, um, if things don't change, um, the you know one billion dollar plus investment for a midstream pipeline from Lokicha to Lamu, um, that might perhaps not be viable right now. But it's not to say, again, the crude oil markets are extremely dynamic. The fact that this was not necessarily on the back of the supply demand dynamics, um, and it was based on other factors, um, you know, 
who knows what we do. But for now, I think it's it's a wait and see. Um, but I don't believe anybody would be make will be making any wrong choices. I think you know the interest that everybody has is to ensure that they safeguard whatever is there, um, you know, so that it benefits you know the people, the people of Kenya. And so, who do you look up to in your field? Hmm. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's tons of people, but I think it's um, one person comes to mind. Um, when when I think of somebody who has been extremely inspiring. Um, and that person is, his name is Paul Pasoli. He was our global commodities head at JP Morgan. Um, and despite managing a global team with thousands of people around the world, I think for, for me, what was remarkable is just he exemplified humility. Um, and that's not, not necessarily what you always think of when you think of energy traders and um, and especially on Wall Street, um, he really took that he was quite unique in the sense that he was extremely good at what he did um, and took the time to relate to you on a personal level. And so in many ways, I think even for me, he believed in me even before I believed in myself and and was able to, you know, really put, you know, skin in the game by taking a risk in you. Um, I was extremely young when I was building our liquefied natural gas desk, you know, in my early 20s. Um, that's unheard of to for a bank of that size to give you, you know, that amount of um, risk-taking ability. Um, you know, so for me, I think that's the first time I was able to see what's, you know, firsthand what servant leadership was. Um, and today yeah. I'm making millions of dollars um, and being in a place and in a position where he could almost run any trading unit around the world, he chose to um, to exit um, JP Morgan and become a principal of a Jesuit elementary high, uh, school in Houston hmm. that provides first class education to children from undeserved communities. So essentially he was using his network and is still using his network to be able to raise money um, and give kids a phenomenal education um, at, at no cost. So for me, that I think with everything that we do um, in this industry and, and as traders, you're driven very much by the financial bottom line. But I think being able to see that at a young age, that it's not just about the money, but I think service and purpose, um, that for me was pretty incredible. And I hope, you know, and I aspire to be very similar um, to him. So when you were speaking about being in your early 20s, um, being in your early 20s, leading up this LNG desk, I truthfully, like my heart, like I got anxiety for you. Like, I'm not even joking. Like my chest tightened, like, oh my God, <laughs> that sounds, you know, it just, I felt, I don't know. I, I just imagine what I would feel like, and maybe that's projecting, but I just want to, I mean, did you have anxiety at that time? Did you, you know, was it smooth sailing? I mean, was the mentorship enough or, you know, did you, did you flounder at times? I just, I just want to get an insight into and also for the benefit of our listeners and, you know, the ages are spread, but there's many who are starting their careers, you know, give them a bit of insight into what that's like. 
No, so for sure, um, it's it's extremely humbling, um, and it would be crazy to say that you are not extremely nervous. Um, you do have some good days, some bad days. Um, but I think for me, what it was was that if they were willing to take a risk on me, then you know the thinking was I must have what it takes to be able to do this job. And again, it's trusting yourself. Now, it's not to say that you do not have imposter syndrome. And even now, I still have that. Um, and that's a reality um, of doing some of these transactions um, or sitting in some of these seats, um, you know, at, at this age. But it's, I think for me, I've always had the belief that it's not just what I know as an individual, but it's cumulatively what everybody I know knows, right? So I know that if I have, you know, a difficult decision to make, um, if there's a transaction that I'm not sure whether to move right or left, that there's, you know, a huge number of people or massive number of people that I can call on to provide that guidance, right? So that that knowing that you're not necessarily alone um, is probably what got me out of a lot of difficult, you know, situations, now there are days it can be extremely isolating, um, and still I, I still have certain tactics. Um, you know, generally over the weekends I don't use the phone that often. Um, it was always a source of anxiety. I don't read the newspapers because for me reading newspapers um, always meant that you know it was always market based because based on what is in the newspaper, the markets would be moving one way or another. So there's certain tactics over time that you you know that I've learned. Um, one, to stay grounded um, and ensure that that anxiety does not take take over. Um, I think what I would say, you know, trading is more, it reveals one, your character. Um, and so you, you realize that many of your weaknesses are completely amplified. Um, and so you it makes you extremely... Um, aware of who you are as an individual and your strengths as well. So it's not just the weaknesses, but also your strengths. So that knowledge of who you are as an individual is probably what makes you a, you know, a, a good trader. Um, and of course, when you've had bad days, um, then usually very often those are cured with um, a couple of glasses of wine just so that you can go to sleep. And I have <laughs> sure done that. <laughs> Um, I'm just, I'm going to piggyback on, um, the, yeah, like you sharing your experience, Elsie, um, and ask kind of like our final structured question, which is what recommendations, suggestions, or considerations for young African women looking to enter into the energy field do you have? Mm. So in a nutshell, I would say, give it a try. Um, the energy sector is based on interpersonal relationships. So, most of these transactions, as I mentioned earlier, are based on trust and mutual respect first. Um, and then subsequently, usually then the contracts come into play. But the first thing is that nobody will do business with you in this sector if they do not know you. So integrity is at the top um, of, you know, of being effective um, and, and, and doing this job well. So I would say for a lot of women, and I constantly see it, especially within the African sector, um, it's that it's incredibly important to network with those in the industry. And again, I recognize these are mostly men. Um, 
but it's just finding a way for you to have a voice, right? So you need to establish those personal relationships because that's the only sure way of being able to succeed in this business. So one thing that I see usually if there's any networking event or if there's drinks involved, you know, you'll generally find that women are not going to be there. Now, for me, especially being a trader, you're sometimes the only woman and there's tactics of being able to still partake and be in that environment without necessarily drinking yourself senseless. So, you know, I used to always use tricks like, you know, I'll drink a GNT. And if I was the one who was buying the next round of drinks, I would tell the bartender, hey, you know, for every drink that you give me, make sure that two of them are water, right? Um, so there's ways mm-hmm. of that. what I'm saying is that do not avoid those situations where you can interact and build those personal relationships with men, um, men in the industry and fell- other fellow women traders, if they're there. Um, I would say be bold in sharing your ideas with others. So most of the opportunities in the sector, because somebody suggested your name in a room, right? Um, and so for people to know what your skill set is and what you bring to the table, then sometimes, you know, it's necessary to be vocal and be okay with disagreeing with certain views. Um, So not necessarily going with a herd. Um, So you have to have a unique voice in in, in whatever way you're going to do. Um, The third thing I would say is probably just do the work and do it well. You know, the surest way to earn respect of a lot of these players um, is to do a damn good job. Um, And very often, sometimes doing the difficult things. Um, So, you know, as they always say, so be so good at what you do that they can't ignore you. So very often, most of the opportunities that I've had in Kenya, I did not have a network. I had to build it completely from ground up. But I was willing to say yes to things that people were perhaps um, unsure whether they could figure out an answer. Um, And very often you find that our African women, until you know a job extremely well, you always kind of shy away from putting your hand up. So I would just say, just put your hand up um, and then figure it out as you go along, right? There's somebody that you know, or a friend of a friend, or somebody within your network um, that can support you and help you um, to get the job done and do it well. Well, I feel like we've created a few energy economists or traders as a result of this episode. <laughs> That's fantastic. It'd be such a win. I, I if we have Yeah, I totally agree. Even I'm like, should I go back to school? Did I do this all wrong? <laughs> you can I also had that thought. I was like, wait, who do I need to talk to in Kenya to start trading commodities? Does Strathmore have trading classes? Like I'm like I'm rethinking my whole life. <laughs> so we're actually setting up trading up with uh, trading classes. And again, we're still we're still quite behind. Right now, we're doing just the infrastructure at the moment and the policies. So, you know, it's almost like being here. It's almost like seeing what these markets could look like in 10, 15 years and then working backwards. So for sure, there's a lot of opportunities for many of our incredible young African women to get involved in this sector. So I actually have one question. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm cheating here, but... I, I know that, especially coming from, you know, what I studied and, and the types of folks that I studied with, um, you know, obviously the extractive industry is not seen in a positive light, right? You have discussions around climate change. You have discussions around damages to communities, um, ownership pieces, which we've talked about. 
an agency and who controls these markets and who truly benefits. So what would you say to the detractors of your field? Detractors in what sense, Addy? So those who say, you know, that it's a, it's a, it's an extractive industry in, in all the senses of that word. Right. Mm -hmm. So energy is, I mean, it's contributing to climate change. Oil companies have, have lied to, to, to the world about, you know, they knew that it was, you know, their activities were speeding up um, climate change, but, you know, held back, didn't say anything or on the side kind of invested in renewables. Um, You have, you know, the community, you know, the damage that oil has done, you know, look at Nigeria, right? There's a whole host of case studies around. um, And yes, you could say that it's mismanagement and not just the hydrocarbons on their own that have caused damage like human actions also cause damage. But in a nutshell, you know, what's done is done. So what would you say to those who say it's an extract, it's an extractive industry, it's a harmful industry? Um, I just want to get your sense of, you know, do you engage with those debates at all? Do people, I mean, do you see there's do you see it on online on social media? Do you have a perspective on it? I'm really curious to hear your perspective, considering I know where you're coming from when you're doing this work. Yeah. Um, So I think it would be, you know, you definitely want to hear both sides, right? And I think it boils down, at least for me, there are many things that are not right with the oil and gas sector. And I would not sit here and preach and say that everything has been done perfectly. My only thing is to say that um, in engaging with in a lot of these conversations is that you need to be extremely pragmatic um, and have and be balanced, right? So um, these conversations are constantly happening. Um, I know I do sit on both sides of the renewable energy conversation and I do sit on the other side of the fossil fuel conversation. But again, it's not being emotional about the way I look at it. Um, but again, it's looking at the pros and cons. And so I will say, from a transition standpoint uh, in the energy sector, I think it's right um, to think about climate change. It's right, um, you know, to move uh, or uh, do your best to move from the fossil fuel uh, stage to renewable energy. But there are also other concerns. So if you take, for example, um, you know, our Kenya sort of power situation at the moment, um, it's well and great that we are, you know, like 80 uh, 80% plus a renewable energy, but we're still struggling with grid reliability, right? So where's that balance? Um, we still need additional baseload. Um, and that additional baseload, it, you know, my personal view is that we might get it from geothermal and hydro, but with the droughts that we've currently been ha- having, um, the hydro that we generally rely on um, hasn't always been available. Uh, and so as a result of that, then, you know, we have blackouts. So perhaps in that sense, it might not be such a bad idea to think about natural gas being that bridge between the fossil fuels, which is a lot cleaner than perhaps your coal or your diesel burning. Um, And it could be a good mix with renewable energy, right? And so continue investing those, um, you know, in, in a parallel way, right? So for me, the end goal is how do we you know, sort of safeguard and ensure that the 600 million people that we were talking about in energy poverty uh, do have access to power, um, but not just access to power, 
cheap, affordable power. And it's the same thing for driving growth um, in, in our countries, right? So we talk about the manufacturing sector here and the contribution to GDP of the manufacturing sector has actually stayed stagnant, um, if not gone down since we got independence um, in this country. So a big cost of that has been you know, energy. So now do you give all of that and try to say, you know, we build industries and support jobs um, and increase growth in our countries um, and actually find money to, you know, internally just to do a lot of the development work that's required um, and essentially override that with something and only thinking about renewable energy. So I think what I would say is that this transition will happen. It needs to happen. But I think the approach, depending on what part of the world you're in, we're in a developing country still, you know, um, or we're still in emerging markets. And so therefore, you need to be extremely thoughtful about what that balance is. Um, it shouldn't be that it's 100% one way. And it's, you know, the only conversations that we're going to have are renewable energy. Um, and it shouldn't be that we are doing everything to safeguard. There has to be a happy medium somewhere in between. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to end this episode. <laughs> or rather this section. Except, yeah, we're not ending the episode yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> plot twist. Um, so Elsie. Yeah. As our listeners will know, we have um, a by force or by fire uh, segment of our podcast, which is just a quick way for us and the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Um, and so what will happen is we will ask you an either or question um, and just say the first thing that comes to mind. And then if you want to give some context as to why you chose that answer, then you can, but don't feel like you have to. So Adidana, we'll start off with our first question. Uh, this is my favorite question to ask because I feel like you learn so much about people by their answers. But uh, Elsie, still or sparkling? Sparkling. I do not like correct answer, Elsie. <laughs> correct answer. I knew. I knew you were going to say. I just knew it. Uh, so just saying, I've, I've never been a. I just don't like the taste of water, and so for me, sparkling is almost like I'm drinking a, a different type of beverage. I know that's a bit strange, but sparkling all the way. I love the taste of water. A Amen, Elsie. We'll talk Amen, about this. Elsie. We'll talk about. We are in the same. Yeah. I'm going to become an energy trader and drink sparkling water with you. Um, okay, so my the next one is curry or ugali? Um, so I would say curry, actually. Um, I love cooking with spices. And so, yeah, for me, it's almost, I think, the, the science and the chemistry of being able to try different things. Ugali is quite simple. So I am going to definitely go with curry on that. Because I think it's just right. we're two for two. As a one, food. For, yeah. one for two so far. <laughs> I feel you. Um, next question, coast or safari? Safari, actually. Um, and that is because I re-energize in nature. Um, I think because already I've always had or worked in, you know, in a field where uh, it was always mayhem and chaos, the ability to have silence. Um, and I, I tend to get that type of silence in nature. I will always take, um, I'll always take the nature over 
being in the coast where sometimes it can be a little bit more rowdy and there's a a bit more of a party element. So, yeah. So I think that has been my way of, of balancing. All right. Three for three, Elsie. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) 2.5. 2.5. Because I could do either. I could do both. Okay, so the next one is uh, cooked sukuma, so cooked kale, um, for people who don't know what sukuma is, um, or raw kale or American kale, as it's called, like in a salad. Um, raw kale, for sure. Um, just I think from yes, a- Elsie, we're four for four. <laughs> <laughs> Health benefit, <laughs> definitely the latter. Yes. Um, and I think you just, you don't lose the taste as much, right? Um, yeah, I think you, you can also add and spice it up with a lot of other goodness uh, when it's raw versus when it's cooked. Uh, next question. I already know we're not going to be aligned on this. Walking or running? <laughs> running. I knew it. <laughs> Is this the wrong yeah. time to say five for five? Exactly. <laughs> This corona pandemic has been like the only source of working out. So Karua Forest, guys, um, that has been everybody's everybody's a runner now. Yeah. Uh, Namusa, over to you. Okay, and then our last uh, by force or by fire question is Netflix or watching um, a movie in the movie theater. Mm, man. And that's in the regular in the regular world. So right now, obviously, maybe one is not as much of an option, but normally. Yeah. I'd actually say going to a movie theater, right? Um, I don't watch much TV, to be honest, and, and I've been that way since I was young. Um, so I find that if I am going to go watch something or consume something, then it has to be an experience and an ex- experience where I'm sharing it with other people. Um, so then, yeah, the going out for a movie is an event um, a lot bigger than just consuming something on television. Or computer. Six for six, Namusa. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. I was just gonna be quiet and be like, I just send Elsie a private message, being like, "Girl, let's hang out when Corona's done," because we have all the same interests. So, quick That's, question. Yeah. Quick question, Elsie, because I want to know if Africa is indeed a country. When you say you didn't watch television when you were younger, was that because by choice or because your parents had limits on your television intake? No, that all has to do with boarding school, just the fact that I didn't have access to it. So it just goes to show what you didn't have when you were younger. Um, Yeah, being in American boarding schools where there was very limited access to TVs. So I think as an adult, then it's not something that I, you know, partake in. So that's the reason, boarding school. You could have gone the whole other way and like become an addict but you've you've taken the <laughs> the responsible yeah. approach. Yeah, but I'll also think about it. So for me, I'm I usually and for a long time I had six screens in front of me. So in many ways, that's almost like watching TV every day. You have your Bloomberg, you have mm-hmm. Mark, you have you know. So you're already so bombarded um, with yeah with, with with screens that when you leave, that is not a a way to relax in any way. Uh, sounds good to me. Elsie, when, <laughs> when, uh, when Lent is over, we're going to do a virtual wine situation and we're going to talk about whether or not clean coal is a thing. 
among other topics. We can debate that one, but, um, and perhaps add a, a dash of politics in that too. It's going to be great. <laughs> I, yeah. I too am free that, um, that month. <laughs> Bring some good wine. <laughs> Yeah. And Elsie, on that note, thank you so, so much for, um, yeah, just giving us such incredible content and things to be excited for and our listeners. And um, how can our listeners find you or find your work? So I would be more than happy to engage with any women who are thinking about um, getting into this sector. Um, it is an exciting sector. I do speak at numerous conferences, um, but perhaps through, you know, the Africana podcast, um, then I could provide some contact details that, you know, the young African women or whoever is listening um, can reach out to me if they have any questions. We have some white dudes too, so don't be surprised if you get a few questions. <laughs> All are welcome. All are welcome. <laughs> so we'll make sure that we put your your the appropriate contact details or the appropriate website details in the show notes um, for our listeners to be able to reach out if they're looking at entering the energy sector. Yeah, that's perfect. But we, yeah, thank you so, so wonderful. So much. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks, Elsie. Thank so much for having me. Already a favorite. Incredible, what you guys are doing as well. Oh, thank you. Six for six, Elsie. Don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yes, exactly. Stay safe during these um, COVID times. Um, and yeah, thanks, listeners. Thanks, Elsie. Thanks, Eddie. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.